1 Corinthians chapter 1, please. I told you last week I was uh, anticipating a visit to the doctor, but uh, it turned out to be not for a physical this week, but for a sick call. My uh, head cold felt like it was morphing into uh, something more, and so I went to the doctor, and the doctor said, no more monkeys jumping on the bed. No, <laughs> that was a different time. <laughs> you know, when you go to the doctor, he, first of all, the medical assistant says, do you, do you have a this and do you have a that? Have you had this? Have, you know, they ask all these questions and they type it all in because God forbid we should waste any of the doctor's time. Uh, and uh, fortunately, I have a doctor who likes to visit too. So he came in and we talked about this and that. And I think we talked about other things more than we talked about my physical condition, but but he asked a series of questions, and, and at the end of it, uh, he, he says, okay, yeah, this is what you, where you're at, and uh, here is a prescription that is going to help you uh, get better. He has a huge knowledge base. That's why he went to uh, medical school. And he has the ability to look and to listen, to think, to hear, to, to come up with an evaluation. As the Apostle Paul gets ready to talk to the Corinthian believers about some significant problems, he's going to first of all talk to them about where they're at. What is their status? The Apostle Paul had a huge knowledge base of God's Word. And he had it by his own study. He also had it by divine inspiration. And he's going to talk to them in the first nine verses of this chapter about where they're at in Christ. And it's absolutely critical to know where you're at as you seek to move forward in maturity. And so we want to understand today uh, some things about salvation. Now don't be scared about all those points that are on that, those notes that you're looking at. The Seahawks already played yesterday. So we can just stay as long as we need to get this done today. There's no, no worries. No worries there. No. We're going to overview. We're going to skim. We're going to summarize because that's what Paul did. And I hope you can, one of the things I hope you learn today is, as we go through this passage is to realize how deep some parts of God's word are. We, we read through them in nine verses, but boy, there, are, there is a, a series of concepts here. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We want to understand salvation today so that we can look at ourselves before God and know that we are ready to grow in Christ because we know Christ as our Savior. So the first thing we see here is the initiation of salvation 
And it starts with God's call. Look at verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then verse 2. To the church of God which is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Do you remember how Paul came to faith in Christ? Saul, that was his name before he became a believer, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest And he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way or believers in Christ, whether men or women, he might bring them bound, that is in shackles, to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You know, one of the things that we miss in this interchange is a very simple fact. Was Paul looking to meet Jesus? No. What was he looking to do? To persecute Jesus. Now, he didn't didn't know that he was personally persecuting Jesus. That's what happens when this interchange goes on. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? What was Paul doing? He was living out his life, his religion as he understood it, the Old Testament way of the Jewish people, but sort of carried to an extreme that obviously God never intended. And he was walking through his life, and God reached down and got a hold of him and shook him real hard and said, hey, buddy, You need to believe in me. That's the call of God. Now, God called the Corinthian believers in what we would call a much more routine way. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Apostle Paul went to the city of Corinth. He went to the place where, where Old Testament era believers would gather to pray and he reasoned with them he talked to them he taught god's word and he did it over and over and over and then if we were to read on in the text there comes a point at which he escalated into a more more confrontational mode and he said jesus is the christ now when he did that some people believed and some people got angry but here's the point God called. Some of the people didn't want to say it was God calling, but it was God calling. But God's call through the stuff of life, through the stuff of ministry, is just the evidence of the the real call of God, which happened, according to this, in eternity past. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. It boggles the mind to think that in eternity past, God looked down and said, I am going to set some things in motion. I am going to make some things happen so that these people will come to faith in my son, Jesus Christ. The world hasn't even been created yet. 
unbelievable. We, we just can't, we can't fathom it because many of us, in, in thinking about our salvation, many people might say, well, I was seeking the Lord. Could I just say to you, you were seeking the Lord because he was seeking you. This is one of the reasons we need to pray for people to become saved. Because it is God who reaches down and pulls on people's hearts. He might be pulling on your heart today, saying you need to believe in Christ. Our tendency is to think that people can search for God on, our, on their own, but they can't. And the reason becomes clear when we look at the essence of salvation here in verse 2. The essence of salvation is this word sanctification, or to be sanctified. To the church of God, verse 2, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified. We could say that to be sanctified is a synonym to be a believer in Christ, to, to be a Christian, to be a child of God, and it is. Paul uses it that way. Um, I could get up here and say, how are all of you sanctified people today? And, and, and that would be the same as saying, how are all of you Christians today? That, that is true that it's a synonym, but it is a specific word that has a specific meaning. And it tells us something about salvation. The word sanctified means literally to be set apart, and it's almost always used this way. We have been set apart from the world to God in this process of salvation. The word is most often translated holy in the New Testament. And what it teaches us is we are in the world and we need to be moved into the world of Christ, the world of God, but we can't do it ourselves. Acts 26, 18 Paul, the Apostle Paul is talking about whole, the purpose of his ministry was to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Salvation, the essence of salvation means to be moved from from being in sin to being in righteousness with God. God had to call us to salvation because all human beings are in spiritual darkness under the power of Satan. So he calls us and causes us to hear the truth and we're able to respond to him. That's what it means to be saved by grace. The means of salvation is grace. It is a gift of God. The famous verses that many of us have memorized, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We have nothing to do with our own salvation other than to respond to God's call and his truth with our faith. And that is the requirement of salvation as talked about here in verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified, called to be saints, who with, who, with who in every place call on the name of Christ. God calls to us and awakens us to himself and we respond by calling back and saying, yes, I believe. 
Romans 10. Romans 10 says, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth, that means to agree with God and to say it. Will you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? You will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, I don't believe God is trying to teach us a two-step process. I think what he's trying to say is this is an internal decision we make which is verbalized because it is so genuine and pervasive in us. A person who somehow, I don't know how you do it without using words, but the person who wants to to somehow give the impression, I know Christ as Savior, but I'm not ever going to talk about it, may very well be kidding themselves and you. If you are a believer in Christ, He is in you and He is changing you, and it should just be natural to speak about it. Not that you're going to become a preacher or a teacher necessarily, but if someone were to say, have you believed in Christ as your Savior? It should just be easy peasy to say, yes, I have. I believe in Christ. When we have people in the, in the baptismal waters, we have them write their testimony so we kind of get that whole story laid out as clearly as possible. And we have someone come up and read that story who's been significant in their life. But you'll notice that at the end, I always say, have you believed in Christ as your Savior? And they say yes, and if they say no, I'd say let's get out and go study the Bible. Confess with your mouth, you believe with your heart. It's all one thing, if you will. God saves us by a gift. We don't do anything to get saved. We believe in what Christ did. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Why is the cross a stumbling block and a foolishness? Very simply, it's because God looks down from heaven and he says, you cannot save yourself. And the Jews look up and say, I don't like that. And the Greeks look up and say, that's stupid. Many people have commented that we're living in a Greek-type society, that is, one with many gods, but no knowledge of the God. And so consequently, people say, look, there are many gods. There are many paths to heaven. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of religions which are all based on some method of earning your own salvation. And the reason there are hundreds and thousands of those religions, but only one with a cross and a man, a God-man who died to pay for your sin because you couldn't pay it, there's only one religion like that, and it's this one, true biblical Christianity. People like the idea of earning their own way. And especially in America, it is the American way. I am going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. 
and I will stand before God in heaven and say, here I am, where's my place? Why doesn't that work? It doesn't work because we're sinful beings trying to do something righteous. We are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like a filthy rag. Do you know that word gets flagged as a misspell by Microsoft Word? (laughs) It's bad grammar, but good theology. All of the things that we would do and, 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 and we, would, we would do all of these things and we would take them like a portfolio to heaven and say, here God, here is what I have done. God says, you're dirty. Could you imagine something with me this morning, something really, really miraculous. Could you imagine that your teenage son volunteered to fold the laundry? Or something even more magical. Imagine your husband volunteered to fold the laundry. And he came right in from rebuilding the motor in his, in his, in his hot rod. Oh, yeah, you know, it's a short block V8. Oh, yeah, you know. And he comes in and his hands are covered with dirt. He says, dear, I want to bless you today. Where's that laundry? I'm going to fold that laundry for you. And, and no, 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 dear. No, I'm going to do it right now. Get it for me right now. There's no way he can bless his wife with those dirty hands. It's just not possible. Well, maybe in, in some homes it would be such a blessing you'd let him fold it anyway, wouldn't you? <laughs> wow, I don't know what happened, you know. You see, that's us going to God saying, hey, God, I want to do something for you. And he says, your hands are dirty. They say, yeah, but God, I'm doing it myself. And he says, I don't care. He said, I sent my son. He did the work. He died in your place. He had clean hands. He had clean hands all of his life. And he went to that cross and he shed his blood for you. And I have accepted that payment for sin. And if you will believe in that, I will apply that payment for sin to you. And you will become righteous. Calling on God. We have to call on God because we can't save ourselves. And when we do call on God... There is an impact of salvation, and that impact is summed up in one word in this text, and it's the word peace. It's peace. Look, grace and peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the greatest verses in the Bible, and I know they're all great, but this one is especially great. Romans 5, therefore having been justified, and that word is not in our First Corinthians text, but it means to be made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the glory of God. We have peace with God when we put our faith in Christ. There is no longer the fear of the wrath of God, of being sent to hell, of being judged for our sin. If you are living in the fear of judgment, something is not right in between you and God. It's possible for a true believer to live in the fear of judgment because they're living in sin, 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 sin. But the true believer also confesses sin and gets right with God. If you're living in the fear of the judgment of hell, something is wrong in your soul. The, key, the, the result of salvation is peace, and it's not just the peace about eternity with God. This passage goes on. And he says, not only that, not only do we have peace with God, but we also glory in tribulations. We have peace about our difficulties, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character and character hope. The Apostle Paul says, we have peace with God, but not just that, we have peace with our tribulations, our difficulties, our hard circumstances. Your suffering has purpose and meaning in Christ. Jesus made it clear we would not be problem-free, but we could be peace-filled. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. The, the peace of the world is the absence of difficulty. And, and, and for all of the foolishness that's taught on TV as Christianity, make note of this, Christ never said you'd be problem-free. But he said you could be peace-filled. I'm leaving you peace, not the way the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you can have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The... the the result of salvation is peace, peace with God and peace with our circumstances. And when we put our faith in Christ, God goes the extra mile to assure us that we are in Christ. We see this little phrase confirmed in you in chapter 1, verse 4, or excuse me, verse 5 through 7 that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The key phrase in verse 5, 6, and 7 is, is really the phrase, come short in no gift. And turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you would. We have to, uh, to understand this passage. We have to look at a few different things throughout the book because Paul is sort of, he's sort of giving a, a preview of what's coming, I guess you'd say. In 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the, the uh, aspect of the Christian life that we call spiritual gifts. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away by these dumb idols, however you were led, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are 
diversities or many kinds of spiritual gifts, but only one spirit. There are differences of ministries, but only one Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Now, what Paul is emphasizing here, and we'll see this when we get to chapter 12 eventually, they had all kinds of spiritual gift manifestation. All kinds of things were happening, but they were missing an essential point of Christianity, which was being together and working together in the body of Christ. So he's emphasizing this unity, unity, unity as he goes through. Verse 6, there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. To one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gift of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works in all these things and distributes to each individually as he wills. Now come back to verse chapter 1, please, and look at verse 7. You came short in no gift. What he's saying is there's all of these spiritual gifts that God is using. And he said they were all going on with you. But the point of verses 5 through 7 is this little phrase, confirmed in you. And what was it that was confirmed? He says, verse 5, you were enriched in everything, in all of this utterance, the ability to speak God's truth and to know God's truth. You didn't come short in any gift, verse 7. And the, the result of this is the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. When we come to faith in Christ, God helps us to perceive the reality of our salvation in several ways. One of them is by the Holy Spirit inside of us personally confirming that. Romans 8 talks about that. He says, according to the Spirit, we're able to say, Abba, Father, we, there's a confirmation there. Here, the confirmation is the action of spiritual gifts. He says, as you live out the ministry that God has called you to do, there is a confirming work of the Spirit in your life. When we do God's work and we see God's results, we understand, I am doing this with God. And, and, and so God is good not only to save us, but to assure us that we are saved by the way he works in us and through us. And of course, that confirming work, that assuring work, happens within the relationship of salvation, which is the church of God. Look at verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. If you want to know who the church of God is, it is those who are sanctified. Not just the people at Corinth, but verse 2 says, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ. Again, we don't intend to go in depth today on any of these topics, but the summary is this. When you got saved, you were placed into the body of Christ. Christianity is not an individual sport. It is a team sport. One of the great um, difficulties of American Christianity is this idea that it's all about you 
and, 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 and some of that thought process has contributed to people sort of shopping their church life around. Well, we, we go here for this ministry and there for that ministry and there for the other ministry as though this is a shopping mall from which I get things. God intends for us when we get saved to become part of the body of Christ. One of the great errors of the Corinthians was that they were very selfish in the way they were living out their Christianity. And the Apostle Paul many times throughout this book is going to say, hey, this is a group thing. Yeah, it's about you knowing the Lord and growing up, but I intend for that to happen in a body. And so the book is addressed not to the individual Christians, it's addressed to the church and to all of those in the body of Christ. There, is a, there are two senses of the body of Christ. One is all Christians everywhere of all time are all part of the body of Christ. And then there are local representations of it. All of these New Testament epistles, virtually all of them, were written to individual groups like us. Our spiritual gifts, the way that God wants to confirm our salvation through activity and and cause us to be productive for him are intended to be worked out in a body in a group a local church the experience of the believer functions here and now but it also focuses on what is coming in the future the expectation of salvation and he talks about he uses this little phrase eagerly waiting verse 7 You come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. These people were looking forward to the Lord's return. Paul talked about it in Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ, and to die, allow me to paraphrase, would just be super. If I live on the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I do not know. Now, when he's writing this, he's in jail. And I think what these verses also perhaps indicate is he wasn't quite sure how to pray. You know, I've talked to people who are gravely ill, and sometimes they they feel that way. They think, you know, it would be nice to go to heaven, but I kind of feel like I'm needed here. And they kind of don't know how to pray about that. I, I can remember at least one person, a couple of people actually, saying to me, you know, I've thought about this and I really think I need to stay here because of this and this and this. I said, okay, then I'm going to pray for your healing. And, then, and sometimes the Lord does, sometimes the Lord doesn't. The Apostle Paul was in jail and he thought, you know, wouldn't that be swell if they just come in and lopped off my head today? I really think that's how he was thinking. Because he thought, Man, I get to go to heaven. I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And he goes on to say, but I I think I'm more needed here, so I believe that's what's going to happen. And in fact, that is what happened. Real Christians, children of God, look forward to seeing God. We're going down to Seattle today for grandson's birthday. And so are Steph and Raul and their kids. Their kids couldn't sleep last night because they're so excited to see their cousins. 
I slept like a baby last night. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing the family. They're all, all the kids and grandkids are going to be there. That's going to be great. But Kylie and Malachi, they're, yes! When you think about seeing Jesus, how is it? Well, he'll be okay. These folks were eagerly waiting. They were real believers. You know, a little book came out a few years ago about a man who had a car accident and supposedly died and went to heaven for 90 minutes. It's called 90 Minutes in Heaven, I believe. You know how I know that didn't happen? Because he didn't talk about Jesus till toward the end of that book. And if you tell me you're going to show up in heaven and be more excited about your mama than your Savior, something's wrong in your soul. The one who died for us, the one who has advocated for us, the one who, as we will see in a minute, keeps us saved. Man. And when we couple that with those verses that say, I hath not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for, for, for him, those that love him, how can we not think, wow, I can't wait to see what that's about. Those who believe on him as Savior will see him in heaven because he is going to make it happen. That is the security of our salvation. He says he is going to make sure that we are confirmed to the end. I am not going to make it to heaven because I am a great believer. I am going to make it to heaven because I have a great Savior. Listen to these words of Jesus. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to, them, to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. You get the picture here? Here's Jesus, and, and, and he's got a hold of us, and the Father has a hold of us, and he says, nobody's going to snatch them out of my hand. I'm going to make it to heaven because Christ is going to make sure that I make it to heaven. I have put my faith in what he did on the cross. He is going to make sure that I get to see him face to face. And when you get there, you are going to experience the completion of your salvation. That is to be blameless. Look here. He has, verse 6, the testimony of Christ, was, excuse me, uh, verse 8, who will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect yet. Um, I'm, I know that shocks you. First John 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. John, John just says, just stop there a minute and think about that. We get to be the children of God. 
What an, an incredible amount of love that is. That would be a verse to read when you're feeling bad because your life isn't just as great as you think it ought to be. And just to stop there and go, I'm a child of God. Therefore, the world doesn't know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed exactly what it will be like in heaven when we see him. But we know that when he is revealed, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. This is the culmination of salvation. And again, we don't have time to unpack all of the relevant scripture, but let me just summarize it for you today. When you put your faith in Christ, the penalty of sin is removed. You believe in Christ, God says, you are now my child. No more wrath of God for you. No No more living under the penalty of hell. You are my child. The penalty is removed. And as we walk from day to day, we conquer the power of sin with the Holy Spirit through the word of God. But we're still struggling with sin. But on that day, when we die, or when the rapture happens and we're taken to heaven, this is what happens. We get to be, boom, finished. We're a work in progress. I'm not as sinful as I used to be, but I'm not as righteous as I need to be. And God is working on me, working on me, working on me. And on that day, it will be done. And he will say, well, no more time. Zoop, there's the rest of it. And we will be perfected. Sinless perfection of body and soul. Wow. What in the world will that be like? That would be so awesome. How can I be certain that I will be saved? Look at verse 9. God is faithful. God is faithful. The dependability of our salvation depends on God. God is faithful. I may not be faithful, but God is faithful. Now, believe me, if if you're new in my church, you'll find this out as time goes on. I do not believe that salvation opens the door, you can live any way you want because you're going to go to heaven. The true believer has a conscience toward God and wants to walk with God. But even the true believer struggles at times to think, oh, I've failed the Lord. When we have the Lord's Supper, we sometimes read from the Gospel of Luke, which is one of, the, one of the Gospels that records the events of the Lord's Supper and the words of Jesus when he said, take this bread, take this juice, and so on. But in Luke, he said something that didn't get recorded by the other Gospel writers. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. Now, we we readily identify the cup with the blood of Christ. We've gotten that imagery, but it, it goes beyond just blood because the blood is like the signature on the document that makes it legally binding. This cup represents the blood, which is the new covenant, a legally binding agreement. God has made a deal with mankind. Jesus paid for your sin. If you will believe in Christ, God will take away your sin. It is a binding agreement. God is not 
arbitrary or ambiguous. He doesn't say, well, let me think, I, I don't like you that well. You know, that, Marianne, now she's, she's really a good, good woman. I like her. But you, you not so much. God's not like us. God is faithful. He made an agreement. He will live by that agreement. All of the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, or the word amen means let it be so to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes you with us in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee i have a chair that i bought when i got my first knee surgery done so that's four years ago it's guaranteed for five years somehow it's gotten kind of low in the seat i hope they'll make good on the guarantee but if they don't Frankly, I won't be surprised because I don't expect that much from a lot of people who write guarantees these days. I have a guarantee on the burners in my grill. I love to grill, love to cook, you all know that. And the burners are guaranteed for life. You know what that means? That means every three years you buy new burners and put them in and they pay for the burners, but not the shipping. I'm thinking guaranteed for life means these babies are going to last. No. God's guarantee is not like that. The promises of God, I love that, are yes and amen. When God made an agreement with you to save you, he meant it. If you genuinely believed in Christ, he has saved you and you're going to make it to heaven and the reason is because of the privilege of our salvation. Will you look with me at verse 9 again? God is faithful, by whom you were called, into the fellowship of his Son. The fellowship with Christ. Do you remember these words of Christ? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, we, we're kind of familiar with this concept of the yoke, and, and we've talked about it in, in terms of discipleship. And when I believe in Christ, I get into the harness. You know, it's, it's like we, we call it a harness now, where you, you put a harness on this horse and a harness on this horse, and you hook them together, and they pull the cart. That's, that's the imagery here. Here's Christ, and here's me, and I'm going to get in the harness with him. And we usually talk about this from the perspective of discipleship. He's the one that I'm getting in with him and, and he leads and guides and so on and I have to submit and all that. And that's good. But would you look at 1 Corinthians 1, 9? The fellowship of his son. I'm getting in the harness with Christ. You know what that means? That means he's going to pull his weight. That means he's going to be with me. We're working together. This is a team, him and me. And I don't mean to diminish the lordship of Christ here. I, I, I truly believe that he's got to be the lead horse in this harness. But I get to be in it with him. He is with me pulling the load. He is with me protecting me. He 
is with me, encouraging me. He is in heaven advocating for me. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said, I am with you till the end of the age. We are partners in this endeavor called the Christian life. How should I respond to this? I should respond to it in worship. I want to go back through these verses and I want you to see something. You might even want to just put a little underline by the words Jesus Christ. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 2. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints with, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you get the point that maybe Jesus is important? Listen to Colossians 1, in whom we have redemption. This is talking about Christ through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, that in all things he may have the preeminence. How should I respond to this gift of salvation? Certainly I should respond by believing if you've never truly put your faith in Christ, you need to do that. You ought to do that. You will benefit by doing that. And if you are a believer in Christ, I hope this passage will just remind you of the greatness of your salvation and of the person of your salvation, Jesus Christ. When we lived in Seattle, I was part of a, uh, an organization that uh, worked with the federal government when there were disasters, and, and we were sent down to Northridge, California after the Northridge quake, and we set up a, set up a medical clinic. That was our thing, and uh, you know, all of the, a lot of buildings were ruined beyond you know, usability, and so we're there just serving the people with normal medical needs. But right across the street from us, there was a, a brand new two-story building, real beautiful looking office building, and not a soul in it, and uh, during one of the times when I didn't need to be doing something, I'm walking around looking over there, and I went over there, <laughs> and uh, you know, the sort of the footer foundation of the wall came up about this high, and it was a big kind of cement and glass and all of that, and the building had gone like this on the foundation. The whole thing just kind of shifted off the foundation, which means you get to tear it all down now. It was a newer building, but somehow, somehow they didn't attach that building to the foundation right. In 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul said, no other foundation can be laid other than the one which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the question today is, are you firmly attached to the foundation? 
That's the starting point for growing up in Christ. You need to know that you're in Christ. And I can't think of a better passage that lays it out for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your sending him for us and for your accepting the payment that he made for our sin. May we be firmly attached to that foundation today. If there's anyone here who's not, anyone who's wondering, anyone who's not certain, may they make that certain today. And may we be ready now to grow as we move forward in Christ. I pray in his name, amen.